are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, newly re-elected chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is November 27th, 2022, and this is episode 201 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation with Kathy Mastico, author of a new book about Point San Luis Lighthouse in California. We're actually recording this a little ahead of time. Do you have any big plans for Thanksgiving, Michelle? Um, we're actually having um, a small family Thanksgiving here at our house. My mother-in-law is having just had surgery today, so they're just going to come up and we're going to have dinner here. Sounds good. Yeah. My best to your mother-in-law after yes, surgery. Yes, thank you. Sure. And uh, we'll be, Charlotte, my wife and I will be going down to Boston to my brother's place for Thanksgiving, so also a very small family Thanksgiving. Uh, hopefully not too much traffic in Boston. <laughs> hopefully not. So uh, it's hard to believe we're getting near the end of 2022. Uh, and I'm wondering, Michelle, has anything interesting happened on this date in Lighthouse history? Yes, Jeremy, something has. One of the most severe storms in the history of Great Britain happened on November 27, 1703. The storm killed at least 8,000 people and wrecked the shipping industry. Hurricane-force winds started on November 24th and didn't subside until December 2nd. The storm climaxed on November 27th when Eddystone Lighthouse, about 10 miles south of Plymouth, England, was destroyed. The builder of the lighthouse, Henry Wynne Stanley, was in the tower with five other men at the time, completing additions to the structure. Wynne Stanley had said that he wished he could be present for, and I quote, the greatest storm that ever blew under the face of heaven, end quote, to see his creation weather the storm. Yeah, that's right. Sadly, he got his wish. Uh, the lighthouse was destroyed in the storm, and the bodies of Win Stanley and the other men were never found. The positive side of that story is that Eddystone Lighthouse has been rebuilt three times over the years. Uh, the present lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks was built of dovetail granite blocks in 1882. It was built properly, and it remains an active uh, aid to navigation today. So let's tell everyone about today's guest. Sure, Jeremy. San Luis Obispo, about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco, was founded in 1772 by the Spanish and is considered one of California's oldest communities. The port of San Luis developed into a major shipping point in the 1870s. A lighthouse at Point San Luis began operation on June 30, 1890. The beautiful Victorian building consists of a square wooden tower attached to a keeper's dwelling. After many years as a staffed light station, it was automated in 1975. The Point San Luis Lighthouse Keepers, a dedicated group of preservationists established in 1995, spearheaded a 15-year restoration effort that led to the lighthouse being open to the public. Docent-led tours are available year-round. Kathy Mastico is a docent and historian for the Point San Luis Lighthouse Keepers. She has written numerous articles for the organization's newsletter, for the Avila Beach Life newspaper, Lighthouse Digest magazine, and for the U.S. Lighthouse Society's quarterly journal, The Keeper's Log. Kathy's new book, The Lighthouse at Point San Luis, has just been published by the United States Lighthouse Society. The book tells the stories of the keepers and families at the Point San Luis Light Station, civilian and Coast Guard, from 1890 
to its 1975 automation. I had the pleasure of editing Kathy's book for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. I was very impressed by the scope of the research she did on the human history of the light station, and it's exciting to see the book published. I just spoke with Kathy this week about Point San Luis Lighthouse and the book. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking this afternoon with Kathy Mastico. And Kathy is a docent and historian for the Point uh, San Luis Lighthouse Keepers in California. And Kathy is the author of an amazing new book, The Lighthouse at Point San Luis, which I've had the pleasure of being personally involved with. And we're going to talk about that. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I am grateful, Jeremy. Let's just start with a, a little bit about your background before we get into the lighthouse and the, the book and all that. Where are you from originally? So originally I'm from the East Coast. I was raised in Washington, D.C. So uh -huh. I'm familiar with some of the lighthouses along the eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. um, moved to California oh, in the 70s. Had a career uh, working in human resources uh, in Silicon Valley. Moved down to the Central Coast in 2002, was going to retire, then decided it was too early for me to retire. So I went back to work at Cal Poly, which is the, um, I should say, California Polytechnic State University, which is the local college, mm -hmm. uh, retired in 2016. So what I did before 2016 has absolutely nothing to do at all with this six-year passion project that <laughs> I had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what led you to get involved with the Point San Luis Lighthouse Keepers? So after I retired in 2016, I had a plan. I, I knew what I wanted to do. And then I got derailed. Uh, I was having lunch with a friend who was working as a volunteer at in the gift shop there at the Point San Luis Lighthouse. And she said to me, Kathy, you should be a docent. And I thought about it for a little while and I thought, well, that might be fun. That might be interesting. And so I um, applied to, to be a docent, to be a tour guide and went through the training. And uh, now here we are six years later, and I know an awful lot about this little lighthouse, I'll tell you. <laughs> I know you do. Yeah. Well, it shows in the, the research and the, the writing you've done about it. So uh, besides researching and writing about the, the history of the lighthouse, what sorts of things have you done as a docent for the group? Well, I'll tell you about three things that were very special to me, uh, being a docent or being a tour guide. And it's really when you're touring someone around who has a strong connection to the light station. So um, one of the keepers that I write about in the book was our second principal keeper, William Smith. I was able to make a connection to his great-granddaughter, his great-granddaughter. And she lives on the East Coast. Um, she has relatives in California. She was making a trip. So I had the pleasure of touring her with her son and with her granddaughter. Mm. So you think about all, all these generations. And um, she didn't know a whole lot about her great grandfather. I think I told her um, a lot more um, than she knew, but she had a wonderful um um, album of family photographs, which which she um, let me have uh, digitally, which was fantastic. So that was a very special experience, being able to tour the direct descendant of a lighthouse keeper. Um, mm -hmm. Another fun um, 
experience or special thing that I did as a docent recently was to tour around the widow of a Coast Guard officer in charge who was stationed at the light station in the uh, mid-50s. And um, she came, uh, she hadn't been back since the mid-50s. She's 90 years young and she came and toured with her boyfriend and, and gave me a wonderful painting that her husband had done of the Point San Luis Lighthouse. So that was special. And then just one more, um, uh, Yogi Guizio was another uh, officer in charge in the 70s. And um, his widow recently donated a bottle collection. He dug up a lot of bottles at the light station when he was there. And so I had the pleasure of touring her and her daughter and her granddaughter around the light station when they brought back the 100, and 100 plus bottles that, oh, wow. that had been dug up there. And we have plans to how, how we're going to display those um, uh-huh. early planning stages. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. All that stuff. Anytime you make contact with people like that, and especially when they have photographs or any any uh, stories or memories, that stuff is all gold. It's absolutely like finding treasure. Absolutely priceless. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, what, uh, and maybe some of the things you just mentioned uh, were part of this process, but what led you to uh, write a book on the history of the light station? Well, mainly it was because we didn't have a book of our own at the light station. And um, I, I wanted to remedy that. And I had been writing about the lighthouse for, oh gosh, I guess ever since 2016, I enjoy research. I would write articles. Um, some were published in the United States Lighthouse Society Journal, some in uh, Lighthouse Digest, and also for a very hyper-local paper called Avila Beach Life. And during COVID, I had the time and I thought, well, why not write a book? And I struggled with how to do it until I realized, well, it can be a collection of short stories. And essentially that's what this book is, 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 is a, just a collection of stories mm-hmm. that, are, that are true about um, the different keepers who worked at the light station. Um, so, um, but the main impetus really was to make sure that we had a book of our own that we could sell in our gift shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is very much about the people, and that's what I love about it. It's what I always love about Lighthouse history is the people that brought these places to life. But the Point San Luis Lighthouse is an incredibly beautiful place. I was there in 2015 when I was working on a guidebook to West Coast Lighthouses, and I was so impressed. So I want to talk maybe in a, a little bit about more of what the, the group there has done and everything and about tours and that sort of thing. But let's talk a little bit more about the history of the, the place itself. Uh, what exactly led to the building of a lighthouse there in the first place in 1890? Why was a lighthouse needed there? Right. Okay. So um, in 1890, um, you had Piedras Blanca's light station, which is to the north of ours. And you had Point Conception, which was to the south. And there were there was a distance of 94 unlit miles between um, those two uh, lighthouses for mariners to try to navigate. So the Point San Luis light was needed to serve as a primary coast light and also to serve as a guide into Port Hartford, which is now called Port San Luis, which had considerable passenger and freight steamship traffic at the time. In fact, it's hard for those of us who live locally to um, imagine, but in the late 1880s, Port Hartford was handling over 400 ships a year. And the uh, Pacific Coast Steamship Company was so frustrated 
by the government not appropriating the money to build this lighthouse and not getting it done that they actually erected their own private light for their steamships. And they actually also had a fog signal, which was a cannon that hmm. would sound during thick weather. So wow. that was why the Point San Luis Lighthouse was needed because mm-hmm. of all the steamship traffic. So the first chapter in your book is actually about the construction of the lighthouse. There were some complications during construction. Uh, what can you tell me about that? So the uh, district engineer at the time, who was William Henry Hewer, um, he put the job out to bid, and um, a local, semi-local uh, contractor. Um, won the job with a lowball bid, in my view. There were, uh, actually, it was put out to bid twice. Um, first time, no one got the uh, contract. Second time, they modified the um, the um, the specs, uh, leaving out the lantern. Uh, uh, they were going to have that fabricated in Staten Island instead of having the, the contractor do it. Eight bids were submitted. His was the lowest. Um, the contract was very strict. It called for the lighthouse to be completed by the um, by December of 1889. As it turned out, it wasn't completed until May 14th of 1890, and their contract had a a penalty clause, uh, a fine, if you will, of $25 a day for each day late. So, the contractor who was George Kenny, that was his name. He um, he. He was charged $25 a day for each of those 149 and a half days that he was late. Now, the question is, why was he late? And there's a couple sides to that story. I never really was able to discover the lighthouse establishment's side of the story, but they rejected Kenny's claims that the delay was due to first bad weather, and that was very true. There were unprecedented rains during the winter of um, 1889 and the and, and 1890. And also there was um, a, someone was called the abusive inspector, but it, he wasn't an inspector the way we understand that term, that lighthouse districts have engineers and inspectors. He was a, an employee out of the office in San Francisco, and he was sent down to um, superintend the construction of the lighthouse, sort of keep watch over the contractor, Kenny. And uh, according to Kenny, he um, this construction superintendent, who was George Washington Bolin, um, he had some issues and uh, was apparently unreasonable and abusive towards the men that he that Kenny had hired to work on the lighthouse and. Um, there was an accusation that he often came on the job intoxicated and would howl at the men. And, and so it was very difficult for a Kenny to uh, keep workers and recruit new ones because word got around that um, Bowling was very difficult um, to work with. So uh, that's a sort of a sad story. And, 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 and because he was a lowball bid, it cost him far more to build the lighthouse than he expected. And with that penalty, um, I think it was ended up being big money in those days. It was close to four thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars that he had to pay. He he basically didn't build anything else, as far as I knew, um, and 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 basically died a, a poor man. He tried for years to get the penalty rescinded, 
His daughter tried long after his death to get the matter rescinded. And I think the whole thing finally culminated with that earthquake in 1906, where they pretty much lost all the records that they had in the office there. And, you know, long story short, he, he never got his money back. It's a beautiful building. Uh, I think the architecture is quite, quite gorgeous. Uh, what to you is special about the building, the Point San Luis Lighthouse? Well, there are a few things. First of all, um, as I'm sure you know, it's it's one of a set of triplets. There were three lighthouses that were built using the same design, one up in Humboldt, Table Bluff, and one down in San Diego, uh, built uh, called uh, Ballast Point. And they were built about the same time. Um, I like to think that Paul Peltz, who uh, was the architect of the Library of Congress, I like to think that he did the design, but we can't prove that. It's beautifully crafted. There were master craftsmen from San Luis Obispo did the finished work on the interior um, of the light station. It's got some interesting features to it. The tower isn't separate from the keeper's dwelling and the tower is attached to the keeper's dwelling. Uh, although there's a separate entrance to the tower so that people don't have to tramp through the keeper's house to get to the tower. Um, it's not very tall, the tower. It's only 40 feet tall, but we're on a bluff that's 90 feet above sea level. Um, those are some of the things that are special to me about our lighthouse. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, it's one of triplets on the California coast. And the other two don't exist anymore. Right. Uh, Ballast Point, the lantern, I believe, still exists. Is uh, sitting on a, a street in uh, like a sidewalk in San Diego, as I recall. Uh, and uh, the Table Bluff Lighthouse, only the tower survives in a parking lot. But the, uh, the keeper's house is, is long gone. Uh, there are a couple of other lighthouses that are very similar. Point mm -hmm. Furman in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, on the East Coast, the Hereford Inlet Lighthouse and, and Seagirt, both in uh, New Jersey, are quite similar, but I guess they're not precisely the same. And those are usually credited to Paul Peltz, I believe. And I think East Brother Lighthouse yes. might be too. And that's um, that's a fun lighthouse to visit because you can actually stay there yes. overnight. It, it's um, operated as a, as a bed and breakfast. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. I didn't get to stay overnight, but yeah, it's a beautiful class of lighthouses. And uh, it's, that, uh, it's that Victorian stick style, which is I find very attractive. Yeah, I totally agree. So back to the uh, the human history of the the lighthouse. Most of your book, as we said, is about that subject: the stories of keepers and their families living there. How were you able to do uh, your research on that subject? Well, first one goes to the National Archives and. Uh, Candace Clifford, who I'm sure everybody in the Lighthouse community knows who Candace was, she was an enormous help in getting us all of the archival material that she could get her hands on uh, from the archives. So that was a good start, an excellent start. Um, I also learned uh, from Candace, I believe, that you could order personnel files from the National Archives, and you never know what you're going to get, but sometimes you strike gold. And you get a lot of information from personnel files, usual methods, ancestry.com, newspapers.com, genealogybank.com. Um, we're very fortunate in that uh, we're a small town or a sparsely populated county. Um, and the local paper um, enjoyed writing a lot about the keepers and their families. And those were all digitized. So, you, you know, kind of pulling material from a lot of different um, directions, um, a lot of different uh, sources, if you will. And then just um, 
you know, following where the where the trail leads. I'm yeah. pretty dogged when I when I I'm very curious. I like detective <laughs> work, so yeah. I'm checking down what I can and learning as much as I can about the people that are my research subjects is is something I greatly enjoy. Well, it shows. Like, you know, it's easy uh, having. Uh, help to edit the book. I, I know uh, the depth of your, your research and uh, you've just done a tremendous job. So, well, just an example of one thing that, you know, you have to be nuts to do something like this. So you have a keeper who, before he became a keeper, bought a boat and rechristened it and named it after um, a person called Edna Robinson. And I spent an entire year trying to figure out who she was. Now it was completely tangential to the, keeper I was researching, but I had to know who mm-hmm. Edna Robinson was. And there's a tiny bit in, in the book about who she was, even though she's actually really tangential to the story of the uh, keeper who named his boat after her. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the first keeper, Henry Young. What was uh, interesting about him? Well, the first thing that was interesting to me was that we didn't know that Henry Young was her first keeper. We thought it was someone else. Mm-hmm. We thought it was Steve Ballou, who was one of the first keepers. He was one of the first assistant keepers, but he wasn't the principal keeper. So I was determined to f- learn who our real principal keeper was. And I started doing research uh, on him. And so he's uh, just a long story short. He was born in England, uh, came to America when he was 16 years old and had a, a career as a mariner before he joined the lighthouse service. He wasn't uh, he was 48 years old when he finally became a keeper. And before that, he he's told a reporter um, in 1908 that he had traveled to every part of the world except for the poles or every part of the globe except for the poles. Um, tragedy struck him uh, at least twice in his life. His little daughter died, uh, drowned when he and the family were stationed at the Farallons, which is about 30 miles outside the Golden Gate Bridge. And then while he was serving at, at Point San Luis, his um, his other daughter also died. Um, there's a lot about Henry Young, though, that I don't know. And he continues to haunt me. He had three sons. I can't find what happened to his three sons. So I know a, a lot about him, but there's an awful lot I still don't know about him. Um, He had an interesting relationship with, I want to say, the Portuguese community, and our county has a a large Portuguese community. His daughter was staying at the home of a prominent member of the Portuguese community when she died, and yet he had a couple of what I guess I'll call dust-ups with an assistant keeper who was Portuguese and another gentleman who later became a keeper who was Portuguese, and one of them accused him of prejudice or bigotry against the Portuguese people. And I've not been able to reconcile that with the, the fact that her his daughter was um, you know, living with a Portuguese family when, when she passed away. So that's very curious to me. He's also, just real quick, he was also at the uh, Alcatraz light station um, when the earthquake hit mm. in 1906, and he's viewing all the devastation of San Francisco, the, the the fire from Alcatraz, and he wrote in his logbook something like, "Violent and continuous earthquake, San Francisco on fire. Is this the end of the world? Terrible seeing San Francisco from here." 
Wow. So I tell that story to my guests at the light station, even though it doesn't have anything to do with our lighthouse. It has to do with, you know, our first keeper and his experience after he transferred yeah. from Point San Luis to the Alcatraz light station. That's incredible, though. You just think about that. It must have felt like the end of the world. It must have looked like it. Yeah. And something you said uh, had me thinking when you said you had trouble tracking down what happened to his sons. I just want to say just in general to anybody listening, and obviously we have a lot of lighthouse buffs, so listen to the, uh, the podcast. If you are descended from a lighthouse keeper or have some special knowledge, whether it's something that's passed down in your family or whatever about a, a lighthouse keeper at any lighthouse, I strongly urge you to contact and if there's an organization involved with that lighthouse, because that information is absolutely vital. Uh, we need to record as much of it as we can. So I just want to put out a plea to people who have any connection like that to, uh, to contact organizations. And I, I know how much I love to hear from these, these people, descendants of keepers who have even a tiny little bit of information. It's all a piece of the, the big puzzle. So. I bumped into someone the other day. I can't even tell you where it was. And we started talking and I think I mentioned the lighthouse and he said, Oh um, yeah. Um, my dad lived there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a minute. What do you huh. mean? And it turns out he's the grandson of Jens Wagner and Jens Wagner was an assistant keeper at our lighthouse in the mid thirties. So you, you, you bump into people. I bump into people when I'm giving tours who say, Oh yeah, my friend's, you know, aunt lived at Point San Luis mm-hmm. or, you know, for a time. So and then, of course, you've got to make contact with that person and, and see if they have photos and, and get their memories. Yeah. 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 Oh, you never know. That's right. You never you know the next piece of information or photo or whatever is going to come from. Uh, so you got to keep your, your ears and eyes open all the time. Uh, so there were civilian keepers and families at Point San Luis from the time it was established in 1890 to 1947. It was Coast Guard keepers after that until the mid-70s when it was automated, right? So uh, anything more about the civilian years, any uh, of those uh, people from that era that you, I know there's a lot having (laughs) read the book. I know there's a lot. We don't have time to talk about all of it. People need to get the book, but anything that really especially stands out for you uh, from those years? Well, um, Antonio Silva is very interesting to me because of the fact that before he became a, a keeper, he was a squatter, if you will on a little island called Whaler's Island, which is um, just off the mainland, quite very near to um, the, the lighthouse, the Point St. Louis lighthouse. And um, he wasn't involved in whaling. He was a fisherman and he was given tacit permission by the government to, 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 to squat on Whaler's Island, even though Whaler's Island had been reserved by an executive order of um, President Grant for uh, lighthouse reservation or lighthouse purposes. And um, he was able to garner an awful lot of support for being allowed to continue squatting on the island. Um, when at one point in time, the government decided that squatting would should be no longer allowed. So that was interesting to me about him. Also, he was our longest serving keeper. He was never a head keeper, principal keeper. He was an assistant keeper, but he served, I think, uh, from 1906 to 1933 at Point San Luis. So he had a very long career there. And in before he, when he first joined the lighthouse service, he served, I believe for three years at 
uh, I want to say point sir. So he's interesting to me because of the longevity of his service. No one served longer at Point San Luis than Antonio Silva. Yeah, yeah. I'm picturing the uh, the really nice picture of him in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he also had a tragedy because he lost his only child, his daughter, yeah. who may have been named after Edna Robinson along with his boat. Um, uh, she died of um, either polio or typhoid fever in uh, 1916. She was only 15 years old at the time. Wow. And that was very sad. Yeah. So if we could talk a little bit about the one of the more interesting incidents in the history of the, the station was the uh, something involving the steamship uh, Roanoke, right? The May 1916. Right. So, um, what I found interesting is that in 1916, for three days in May, uh, newspapers across the country ran front page stories. Mm-hmm. Um, above the fold with the Dateline San Luis Obispo. You, you don't often see that in national papers. And it's because the keepers at Point San Luis spotted a lifeboat drifting dangerously close to a, a long rock jetty that we, we call breakwater. Um, and um, they assisted in rescuing that lifeboat. Um, there were eight aboard, five were dead three were still alive. And it turns out that those were the only three survivors of the sinking of the SS Roanoke. Um, Roanoke had a crew of, I want to say about 50 people. Um, Also the captain's wife was aboard. Why it foundered probably due to being um, too much cargo or cargo improperly stowed, but it was, um, you know, due to the the keepers at Point San Luis, that at least the um, the three men, um, you know, who were on that boat, who were dangerously close to death, if that you can believe the local papers that, you know, that they survived and and lived to tell the tale. So, um, you know, I, that to me is interesting. And one of the keepers um, received a, a commendatory letter from uh, Putnam. Would have been Putnam, George Putnam, the White yeah, House commissioner, yeah. for for his life saving efforts. Yeah, that's quite a dramatic uh, episode. So uh, the Coast Guard years again uh, started in the forties, about nineteen forty seven, up until the light was on, made it in seventy uh, five. How would you say life changed from the civilian years uh, into the Coast Guard years? Um, I think that life changed somewhat in insofar as their rotations were pretty short compared to the the civilian keepers who served at Point San Luis. And, and their mission was different. Um, their mission was to um, modernize the lighthouse and um, make it um, move toward automation. It was very much a family station when the Coast Guard took over. After World War II, you had to be married to be stationed at Point San Luis and your wife had to live at the station. But when your children, and there were many children born in San Luis Obispo while their parents were stationed with the Coast Guard at Point San Luis, but when you reached school age, they transferred you out because up until the road was built, and that didn't happen until 1962, um, similar to the civilian keepers, there were only two ways that you could get back and forth. You could go by water, and you had to time those departures and arrivals with the tide, or you could 
walk the trail and go by foot. And that was just the way that the civilian keepers did it. And then when the road came, of course, everything changed and Coast Guard people no longer needed to go come and go by boat and or foot and the trail basically fell into disuse. So it kind of, you know, it it, it changed in many ways, but in many ways it stayed the same because they still had the same mission, which was to provide um, um, an aid to navigation for mariners. So are there any particular personalities that kind of stand out for you from the Coast Guard era? Well, if I guess I had to just name one, I would name Daryl Beerbaum. He was the officer in charge for a couple years in the mid-60s, along with his wife and their children. And what stands out for me about Mr. Beerbaum is that he was very interested in being involved in the uh, with the nearby town of Avila, and he got so involved that he was elected the vice president of the Avila Civic Association, and he played basketball with the um, local team, and he really he really made an effort to reach out to the townspeople in that nearby town. He also built a playground for the kids um, at the lighthouse. He. Uh, he and one of his, um, uh, I think it was his engineer, second in command, built a kind of a replica fish pond um, so that the kids could see the fish, um, um, you know, swimming back and forth. And the pond had a replica of the actual Coast Guard wharf that was um, that was built. So and, and also he's just been extremely helpful to me in terms of the things that he remembers from his time there. So I would say that. Mr. Beerbaum is the personality that um, that stands out for me the most. But there there really are many more. Yeah. Yeah. I know, again, from from reading it, that there are a lot of interesting personalities in there. And you've got a lot of a lot of good stories from both the civilian and the Coast Guard era. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the lens. The mm-hmm. lighthouse had a fourth order Fresnel lens when it began service in 1890. So where is that lens now? Well, the lens went on tour for a while. <laughs> but now, ever since 2010, it's back at the Point San Luis Light Station. It's no longer in the tower, but it's in a side room of our fog signal building, a room that used to be called the tool room, and it's displayed there uh, for visitors to see. The story of how the light, how the lens came out of the tower, we don't have time for me to tell, but that is another very interesting story. And I just recently connected with the one of the Coast Guardsmen who was there when it happened and gave me a blow by blow of how that lens came down from the tower. But that's a story for another day. OK, we'll have to do a, a part two at some some point. <laughs> when was that that the lens came out of the tower? March 30 of 1976. OK. So the station was fully automated in December 1975 and left unmanned. And uh, people could still come by water to the light station. They couldn't come by land because the property was all, the surrounding property was all um, owned by uh, Pacific uh, Gas and Electric, Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant property. But you could come by water and people started taking pot shots at the lens in the tower, started using it for target practice. So that's why it came down in March yeah. 1976 to rescue it and save it from vandalism. Right. Well, I'm glad it was rescued. And uh, sadly, that kind of thing happened at several lighthouses. Uh, not not recently that I know of, but it happened at several places uh, around the country uh, 
let's say from the 70s for at least a couple of decades, there were, there were a number of incidents. Um, so I'm glad that one was saved and I got to see it when I was there in 2015. It's so nice that it's on display. So let's talk a little bit more about the group that you're part of, the Point San Luis Lighthouse Keepers. Mm-hmm. What are uh, some of the, the things that uh, the docents and volunteers do at the lighthouse? Right. So we only have one paid staff person and she's our executive director. Um, and so the the lighthouse is basically operated and maintained by by a, a core of very dedicated volunteers um, who do everything from doing the maintenance of the of the property itself, the 30 acre light station um, property to um, guiding and leading tours to operating a gift shop helping with special events. We had 25 weddings this year at the light station and volunteers help making sure that everything goes smoothly. As far as weddings are concerned, we had a series of concerts at the lighthouse this summer. So the volunteers get very involved with um, setting up and tearing down and doing everything you need to do to to organize and and execute concerts there. you know, we we do it all, basically. Anything that needs to be done is done by volunteers. We have a Tuesday work crew. They're out there every Tuesday doing maintenance work. We're currently working on trying to restore our two cisterns um, that are very special to us. Each of them holds 50,000 gallons of water. We need that water for fire protection. So we've got, you know, people working on how to do the restoration of the cisterns and their covers. So and I could I could go on and on. You know? I'm sure you can. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you do just a, a little bit of everything. 25 weddings. That's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I thought we had a lot of Portsmouth Harbor Light, but it's usually no more than just a handful, but 25. Wow. I don't so, think we charge, I don't think we charge enough. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, I can't comment on that, but no. um, I, it's kind of an unusual setup there because uh, it is open for tours on a somewhat limited basis by reservation. Tourists cannot ordinarily just drive right up to the lighthouse like they can at some lighthouses. It's, it's uh, quite different. Uh, can you explain a little bit about how that works, how the tours work? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so we right now we're open for tours on Wednesdays and Saturdays. They are shuttle bus tours. We have a staging area that's um, outside the PG&E property where guests board a shuttle bus. They're taken up this uh, narrow, winding, one-lane road. Uh, it's kind of an e-ticket ride if folks even know what an e-ticket is these days, uh, to the lighthouse. And they spend about an hour at the lighthouse being guided around. And then they go back on the shuttle bus. We also, you can still hike to the lighthouse. Um, PG&E docents lead hikes also on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You don't have to reserve for the hike. You can come and uh, then you can tour the lighthouse for a very nominal charge once once you've done the hike. So you can, but you can't, drive there on your own because it's within um, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant property and you can't see it from land. So many people who live locally don't know that we have a lighthouse. We call it the hidden gem of the central coast um, because you can't see it from land, which is you know not typical for, I think, land-based lighthouses perhaps. 
Well, it's an absolutely gorgeous place. And, uh, you know, I, I went way out of, my, out of my way to tour it in 2015 during a West Coast trip. I had to drive a long way to fit it into my schedule, but I didn't regret it one for a second. Uh, I absolutely loved it. So I, I think it's worth the, worth the effort for anybody who uh, wants to do the tour there. Uh, and uh, all the tour information is on a website, right? Which is, is it PointSanLouisLighthouse.org, I, yeah. I think? PointSanLouisLighthouse.org. Yeah, absolutely. All the information is there. And there's a ticket, online ticket service called My805 Ticks, I think it's called TIX, where you can sign up for the tours. Um, I think that they're $25 uh, for the shuttle bus tour. And again, the hike is is free. And then you pay a nominal amount if you want to tour the buildings. Yeah. And the tours are year round, right? The tours are year round. Yeah, yeah, not like here in New England, where things pretty much shut down from oh, October right. to May. Yeah. Oh no, no, it's it's. In fact, we're um, during December we are doing special holiday tours. Um, the the house, the keeper's dwelling, is all decorated. It's absolutely gorgeous, and so December is a very busy month for us because we're blessed with this lovely temperate Mediterranean climate. Yeah. Oh, I love to, I would absolutely love to be there to see that December. So is the group always looking for new volunteers? We are always looking for new volunteers. You know, Jeremy, during COVID, a lot of our, when we were closed for so long, a lot of our volunteers turned to other pursuits. Um, And so we are actually right now doing a big recruitment push. And that's actually going to be part of what we'll be doing during December with the holiday tours is hosting our guests with uh, refreshments inside our fog signal building. And we'll have information available for people who might want to sign up to be volunteers. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do tours. You can work in the gift shop. You can. Um, there are many things that you can do if people are a little nervous about, you know, uh, leading uh, guests around. Um, there, are, there are plenty of things that volunteers can do. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. So I was looking at the website, PointSanLouisLighthouse.org the other day. I saw there's a a nice video on there uh, about the Coast Guard years at the light station. Really nicely done video, very professionally produced. Uh, Some of the former Coast Guard lightkeepers are in that video. I was wondering if you've gotten to talk to some of those people yourself. And were you involved in that video at all? You know, I was not involved in the video. I, I wish I had been, um, but I was not. Um, but having said that, there are three Coast Guardsmen that are in the video and also the daughter of one. So there's Lucky Jackson and his daughter, Linda. Mm-hmm. There's Sarah Maycord and there's George Homenko, whose name I might be mispronouncing. And they have, I, I had the opportunity to do a Zoom with Lucky Jackson and his daughter, and Dottie Orford, who I mentioned earlier, she was also on the Zoom because um, of the Orfords and, and, and Lucky Jackson served together. So, um, and then George Jimenko and Sharon Maycourt have been incredibly wonderful to me. George gave me a photo collection of over 100 photos that are absolutely gorgeous. He's an excellent photographer. Sherm also gave me a lot of photos and memories. And we had a, um, we had a virtual reunion in October with a lot of the Coast Guardsmen or their family members um, who were stationed at, at, uh, at Point St. Louis and um, Sherm Acord and George Harmenko were uh, part of that virtual reunion. Sadly, Lucky Jackson was not. He passed away about a year ago, but his daughter, 
um, Linda Jackson Murray was on part of this virtual reunion as well. So I definitely keep in contact um, with uh, George and Sherm and with Lucky Jackson's daughter. Well, that's great. And again, I'll just recommend that people go to pointsanlouislighthouse.org and watch that video. And there's a lot of uh, other good uh, features on the website, including uh, some VR tour type stuff uh, that's on there where people can virtually look in the lighthouse and the uh, Fox Signal building, I think. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, those are really, really nicely done, too. Uh, So I have two final questions for you for bonus points. Okay. (laughs) So the next to last question is, what did you enjoy most about working on your book on the Point San Luis Lighthouse? I enjoy detective work. I am a very curious person, and I very much enjoy um, doing that research and doing the detective work. So I I love that. In my next life, I want to be Sherlock Holmes. So, yeah. So your final question for extra, extra bonus points, okay, (laughs) is what do you enjoy most about your involvement with Point San Luis Lighthouse? I love giving tours. I absolutely adore showing people around. Um, I I meet so many interesting people doing it that way. And I just really like sharing um, the story of our lighthouse with our guests. So being a a tour guide is my my very favorite thing. to do in terms of my involvement with the lighthouse. Very nicely said. So, uh, Kathy, I want to thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today. And I just want to say again, it's been a real personal pleasure for me to be involved in the publication of your book. As some of our listeners know, I, I of course, this podcast is for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and I do other things besides the podcast for the society. And one of those uh, is to help shepherd uh, some uh, books to fruition. And yours is actually the first major book that we've taken kind of through the whole process to the to publication. Uh, and as we speak in mid-November here, it's about to go uh, to be officially published and go up for sale. It'll, by the time people hear this, it will be available on Amazon and will be available through, uh, I believe, the Point San Louis Lighthouse Keepers website. Yes, that's correct. Okay. That yeah. So I recommend that people go to pointsandlouislighthouse.org, order the book there. Uh, that way the, the uh, group benefits from it to the, the maximum. Uh, and it certainly makes a nice Christmas present. And uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm happy with how it's come out. And uh, I think you should be very proud of the work you've done on it. So congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. And you know that every single person on my Christmas list you know what they're getting for Christmas, I'm sure. <laughs> a signed copy, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, been, it's just been a pleasure, uh, Jeremy, talking with you this afternoon and your involvement with helping to shepherd this book to, to, to fruition is, is just, um, I can't tell you how grateful I am. Well, it's completely my, my pleasure. So, so thank you for the opportunity for me to be involved. And thank you for being with me today, Kathy. And we'll be talking again. I look forward to it. Thank you, Jeremy. The website for the Point San Luis Lighthouse Keepers is pointsanluislighthouse.org. That's point, S-A-N-L-U-I-S, lighthouse.org. On the site, you can get info about tours at the lighthouse, and you can also buy Kathy Mastico's new book, By the way, I also want to give a shout out to our other frequent co-host, Cindy Johnson. Cindy was very involved in the editing of the book. 
Uh, we had a great team. It was a real pleasure helping to make the book a reality, and uh, I'm very pleased with how it's come out. Congratulations to Kathy. I hope the book does really well. It makes a, a nice Christmas gift for anyone interested in lighthouses or California history. Thanks, as always, to all the members, volunteers, and staff at the United States Lighthouse Society and all its chapters and affiliates. Check out uslhs.org to get more information on the domestic and international tours, preservation grants, the passport program, and everything else the Society offers. Donations and memberships help to support this podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us if you listen through Apple Podcasts. So, Michelle, do you have a quote for today? I do, Jeremy. The Roman philosopher Lucius Aeneas Seneca, the Younger, usually known as Seneca, once said, quote, If one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable, end quote. Next week's Lighthearted will focus on Stepping Stones Lighthouse in New York. As always, to all our regular listeners and to our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine